Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we talk to Washington for the first day of the Trump impeachment inquiry. The city of Hamilton is hosting a trade mission to India. What's the objective? Medical staff in Detroit have done a double lung transplant on a teenager after severe illness through vaping. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The first of the Trump impeachment inquiries has taken place. Uh, everybody's talking about it. It's it's on live TV through the United States and and even uh, on, on uh, news channels here in Canada. Reggie Giacchini is joining us. Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington and he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So give us uh, the setup here. Uh, talk about what has just started today and why this is so significant. Well, this is significant, A, because uh, impeachment proceedings into a sitting United States president are incredibly rare. This is only the third time in living memory that this has happened. And the two men that are sitting before the House Intelligence Committee and their associated counsel right now uh, are both active members of the State Department, one of them the acting ambassador to Ukraine, uh, the other the assistant uh, deputy secretary of state at the State Department. Both of them uh, have corroborated information that was originally brought forward uh, by a whistleblower complaint. Uh, and over the last, I would say, 15 or so minutes, as uh, Ambassador Bill Taylor uh, has been kind of providing an opening statement and answering questions from counsel, we've learned some new details, uh, including uh, conversations that the president had uh, in the days after the phone call with Ukraine's president uh, that uh, the Democrats are hoping that they'll be able to kind of latch on to as they continue these, uh, these depositions in, in a public setting. Uh, is there anything uh, you were talking about this new information that has uh, come up? Is is that what this is going to be over the course of this? Is is there going to be lulls in this in in this testimony and such? How much of this is new information? So nothing as of well outside of the information that we just got from from the ambassador. Everything right. is kind of a, a, um, a recap of what they had said behind closed doors and was written down in hundreds and hundreds of pages of testimony uh, from when they were speaking a couple of months ago. So this is just a way to verbalize what people just didn't have days and days to be able to read. Uh, but we are now getting new information. This this little bit of, of, uh, of conversation that Ambassador Taylor told us about uh, that the president had called, uh, you know, former ambassador or uh, European Union ambassador Gordon Sondland. Uh, they had a conversation uh, about the investigation into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, along with Burisma. And uh, Ambassador Taylor says that he only learned about this within the last couple of days. So he hadn't even been able to talk about this when he was sitting down behind closed doors. So there are are opportunities for lawmakers and for counsel uh, to learn new information and be able to progress with that. Uh, the Republicans have been complaining that this has been behind closed doors. How significant that it is now open to the public? And we're well, starting to hear this. It's significant in the sense that, well, it was behind closed doors. Uh, Republicans and the president uh, complained that uh, the process was not, you know, being uh, open and transparent and uh, following the proper procedures. Uh, now that it's in an open hearing, we have uh, opening statements from from uh, ranking member Nunes saying that this is now uh, an opportunity 
opportunity for political theater. So now that they've moved into an open setting, which was giving into what Republicans wanted, they need to find something else to be able to rail about. So they're simply going to use this as an opportunity, uh, as we'll see later on this afternoon, to simply try to derail what the Democrats started with this impeachment proceeding. So who is up uh, later today? Are these people on for the rest of the day? How long, how, how long before we find out who is next and what is coming up next? Uh, so the two men that are sitting uh, before uh, the council right now, they are going to be, they're side by side. They're going to continue and be uh, in that hot seat for the rest of the day. This is only going to be a, a two-person testimony. Mm. Uh, we've learned that in the coming days now, uh, uh, Kurt Volker, who was also deposed behind closed doors, uh, as well as Ambassador Sondland, they are expected to testify next week along with uh, some other uh, kind of rank and file from within the Ukraine portfolio. So this is going to be several days uh, of having to go through this up to including this Friday when the fired uh, Ukrainian ambassador Maria Ivanovich sits down for exactly the same thing that we're seeing today. So what do you think, uh, who are the, uh, the testifiers of interest here in the next few days that you're looking forward to listening to? Well, right. What we get into this afternoon when lawmakers start their questioning after council has been able to wrap up their hour and a half worth of questions, uh, what Ambassador Taylor has to say is going to be uh, important because he is the one who uh, has been able to kind of uh, verify and continuously corroborate the whistleblower complaint that there was a potential quid pro quo or extortion or bribery or whatever you want to call it uh, about the president's requests for an investigation into Joe Biden and Burisma uh, in order to uh, secure either a White House meeting with President Zelensky or or uh, in order to release any kind of security aid into Ukraine. And this is a big deal because this uh, goes against uh, the the oath that the president took for the Constitution, uh, and it also uh, could potentially become a high crime and misdemeanor. So uh, the conversation surrounding that call is going to be important, but I think it's also going to be important on Friday to listen to what the former ambassador has to say, uh, because she uh, is the one who felt threatened in her position and that Rudy Giuliani had been putting this kind of shadow diplomacy together in order to oust her uh, because he believed that she wasn't acting in the best interest of the president's personal political interests. Uh, it seems that people still uh, within the Republican Party keep focusing on the whistleblower. I was surprised that Lindsey Graham was kind of doubling down on that. And as you and I have discussed before, uh, he, the, the whistleblower, he or she, was merely the person that drew attention to all of this. The people that we're seeing now and, and, and testify, those are the ones of interest that have something to say that we can learn from as opposed to the whistleblower. No, wasn't the whistleblower just the person that said, hey, look over here? Absolutely. It's kind of like the whistleblower is kind of like that first snowflake that kind of multiplies and turns into a snowball and, a vulture, yeah. uh, and eventually a, a snowman. And while the information that the whistleblower had is important, uh, Republicans again today tried to say, look, it's time that we uh, need to subpoena this whistleblower and have them come forward and speak, uh, which Democrats were instantly quick to jump on and say, no, that's not going to be happening. Because at the end of the day, everyone we've spoken to and everyone that continues to come forward now continuously corroborates what that one person already came to tell us. Exactly. So uh, obviously the Democrats keep concentrating on, on the fact that the whistleblower can't be identified, what have you. That's really even irrelevant. What they have to say isn't isn't pertinent anymore, is it? It's not pertinent anymore unless they happen to have something new. I think Republicans simply just want to have their day in court to be able to look at the person who started this whole thing and be able to blast them for going after the president. Because remember, what the whistleblower has said has been corroborated, but in Republicans' eyes, they see this person as a potential Democratic operative and a never-Trumper. So this is their opportunity to say, you are the kind of person that's been going after the president for the last three years. Even so, isn't that irrelevant? Because at the end of the day, it's what he said. 
and what those other people heard on the phone call. Absolutely. It is irrelevant what he said and what's been going forward. And Republicans simply just want to have this person there so they can, uh, you know, all but excoriate them and, and say, look at what you've started. Democrats are saying, look, we don't need to have this person here. We have people that are able to give more information, regardless of whether it's second, third, fourth hand information, uh, because at the end of the day, these people are coming to testify before a committee and they're doing so under oath. So none of them are going to put their political careers or their reputations in Washington on hold in order to perjure themselves uh, based on, you know, what Republicans are trying to do debunk with the whistleblower uh are the american people buying the whole whistleblower thing or is it a case of whatever team you're on that's what you're buying into well, I mean, you have to look back to the Russia investigation. You know, it was 23 months. There was political exhaustion and people really weren't, you know, paying attention by the end of it because it got too into the weeds and there were too many avenues to follow down. Ever since this whistleblower came forward, uh, the numbers for impeachment have started to increase. We had a 15 point increase, uh, into around 60% of, of, uh, of Americans saying that the president should either be impeached or removed. So I think that because this is a mildly easier political, uh, kind of bit of, of, of folly to pay attention to, uh, it's easier for the American public to grasp onto it. And Republicans need to be aware that going forward, if that number continues to rise, uh, they run the risk of kind of ignoring their own base on the Republican side. And, you know, if they choose not to take this to trial and not oust the president, uh, but their base wants it to, this could put them in a politically vulnerable situation next year during the election. Are Republicans preparing for an impeachment or are they still trying to discredit the whole process? And shouldn't they be preparing for what could come. Well, they should be preparing because the House, uh, and especially House Democrats, considering they're in the majority right now, have no uh, have no problem uh, going forward with this. There's been no call for them to back down and not hold any kind of vote if articles of impeachment are eventually drafted in a couple of weeks. And that's ultimately going to send that into the hands of, of Republican senators. So if they're not preparing for it, uh, they are either going to be caught off guard with it, especially if they're not paying attention to their base. And if they are paying attention to it, they're trying to craft narratives that will help uh, debunk what the Democrats are saying, although most of what the de- Democrats are pushing right now uh, has been corroborated over and over again. This is just a weak argument that the Democrat uh, that the Republicans are going to be left with. And isn't there enough testimony now to move forward with impeachment? There is, but a lot of it was behind closed doors. So the Democrats right. are basically giving the American public an opportunity to see what people have been saying behind a closed door to be able to kind of draft and sway public opinion and then say, look, we've given you the opportunity. You'll now have that opportunity next year when it comes to the election. But here's how the process lays out. And this is how we are ultimately going to come to our uh, decision to draft the articles. Uh, what's Donald Trump's reaction on this? I guess it's obvious. Uh, well, he's been on Twitter uh, for the last couple of hours or so, basically retweeting members of Congress who are tweeting about this. You know, he is preparing for uh, a meeting later on this afternoon with the Turkish president who's coming to uh, for a bilateral meeting at the White House, which is ruffling a whole bunch of other feathers. But at the end of the day, the president tweeted two important tweets this morning in quote uh, in caps, rather saying uh, never Trumpers and read the transcript. We already know these people simply aren't never Trumpers. The two people testifying today have been career diplomats for decades under Republican and Democratic presidents. But also at the end of the day, the White House did not release a transcript of the phone call. They released a summary that was missing key bits of information that the president uh, had said. So the president was wrong on both accounts, but it's what he's been uh, pushing for the last couple of weeks. And that's the narrative they want their base to be able to read. 
Uh, can, can the president learn anything from this process? Well, the president could learn that uh, asking a foreign leader to get involved in a political uh, election is an improper uh, thing to do because foreign interests may not line up with American interests. And it's also uh, an illegal move that could potentially get you uh, impeached. So this could be one thing that the president learns. The president could also learn that he is not uh, that same person that he said he once was that could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot a gun and shoot somebody and not be prosecuted. There are uh, consequences for wrongdoings in the Oval Office. And if the president is found to have done something incorrect, especially with this phone call, he's going to learn the very hard way that he's not as invincible as he once thought he was. Do you think he will just try to sell that, yeah, I did this, but it shouldn't be wrong. What's wrong with this? And try to simplify that way for the base? That's been a narrative since the beginning of this, because look, first it was denial. There was no quid pro quo. Then it was, well, sure, there is a quid pro quo. That's what we always do. Now it's Democrats are coming after us. What does it matter what I did? Because anything I do is legal. They change the goalpost no matter what's happening because they're trying to run away from things as it catches up to them. How long is all this going to last, do you think, Reggie? Uh, well, we are hoping, the Democrats are hoping to get all of their testimonies wrapped up uh, before U.S. Thanksgiving, which is, uh, I believe, November 28th. And they're hoping to have articles of impeachment drafted, if they do so, voted on just before or just after Christmas. Uh, so this will eventually be in the Senate's hands if it moves that way to the very early parts of 2020. Reggie Cicchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The city of Hamilton announced a trade mission to India. Uh, what's involved with this? What's the objective? What's the uh, are they are they expecting us? What sort of welcome will we get to talk more about all of this? Mayor for the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger is with us and on the air now. Fred, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. I think I think all in, all of India is uh, just Waiting with bated breath. Are you going to get one of those big welcomes, Mayor, when you guys all arrive? That'll be great. I would would hope so. (laughs) Marching bands and drums and uh, marching past the uh, the troops and uh, yeah. No, I don't think so. No, I think we're uh, we're we're going to go and look for new new opportunities in India, the largest uh, largest economy in the world, and there's some uh, some great opportunities for us to start talking about uh, how we can uh, interrelate uh, some of the businesses here with uh, some of the businesses in uh, in India. So All right, so let's so let's talk about the objective here. You've sort of explained this, but what are you trying to do on this mission? We're uh, we're kind of developing relationships with uh, with companies and businesses in India that uh, have an interest in expanding their markets uh, into Canada, and we're bringing along with us uh, companies in from Canada, locally Hamilton here, that have an interest in expanding their markets into you know one of the one of the largest uh, fastest growing markets in the world in India, and so uh, we're, that that is happening, and that uh, kind of developing uh, of relationships is where a lot of this work uh, begins in terms of cross border uh, cross border trade and cross community trade. And then we also have with us uh, McMaster University and Mohawk College that uh, are obviously very keen on international students coming to their facilities uh, on an ongoing basis. So we'll be hosting a a good meeting with uh, students and parents that are interested in uh, Mohawk College as a uh, locale for study in Canada Mm. and uh, helping them, uh, you know, initiate that uh, that discussion and hopefully a fruitful fruitful discussion to bring some of those students into uh, Mohawk College from India. You're talking about business and obviously uh, leaders from universities, colleges and such. Uh, Numbers, how many are going over? 
So we got uh, 18 people in total. Oh, that's uh, great. Uh, so McMaster, uh, Mohawk College, McMaster Innovation Park is uh, going to be very much a part of this. Uh, Gowlings, uh, WLG, Sunrise Metals, uh, Brightfish Inc., Nix Sensor, one of our fast-growing uh, local technology companies, and Transport uh, Corporation are all part of the, uh, the delegation. And then we have uh, two economic development uh, staff and myself and one of my staff people in the office here. So how does this come about? How do you how do you put something like this together? Well, it starts with uh, you know the the trade commission, the India Trade Commission in Toronto, and they've uh, they've been developing a relationship for a number of years now, and uh, uh, there there have been uh, you know multiple trips to uh, to India. This is now really hopefully a trip that uh, starts to starts to culminate in something more concrete. Uh, that's why the mayor is coming. Uh, you know, when the mayor appears, uh, you know, in, in a lot of these communities and, and, and in front of a lot of these businesses, they know that they were serious about the uh, the interrelationships and continuing to develop that relationship. I, 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 I hearken back to a visit we made to uh, Leipzig, Germany, a couple of years ago that uh, resulted in, uh, in a significant uh, investment for DHL uh, right here in Hamilton. So they have a major operation in uh, Germany. We went to visit them, talked to them about the opportunities around our airport. Uh, they've since in- invested, uh, you know, some in the airport, but now have announced a much, much bigger investment uh, going forward some two years later. So it uh, it takes time to develop these relationships, but uh, the seriousness of our work uh, is really demonstrated by the the mayor being part of the delegation. So um, I'm excited about that opportunity, and I always tell our economic development staff I'm I'm really not interested in going on fishing expeditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we need to have is direct targets, uh, individual businesses that have an interest that we can start uh, you know, nurturing to uh, to get them to uh, to make the investments in Hamilton and vice versa, companies from here making investments in India. So you're actually aiming at specific projects here. Um, yeah. You've got certain yeah, things in mind. It, well, when you return from this trip, will there be any sort of announcement because this is going on? Or uh, again, is this just cultivation? Not that yeah, it's just is, cultivation, is, uh, but it, it's cultivation. Yeah. yeah. It's cultivation, and and hopefully cultivation that that uh, you know realizes uh, ultimately uh, a business opportunity that can land here in Hamilton. And again, I would say DHL was uh, you know a cultivation that took many many years, culminated in a very direct visit with uh, some of the executives in the company a couple of years ago, and and ultimately resulted in the investment that we see here uh, in the airport uh, just recently announced. And so those those opportunities you know sometimes take years to nurture and develop. But if you don't do them, you can't get them. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the, uh, the, the provincial government is also, uh, you know, uh, piggybacked on this trade mission with us as well. So Minister Fideli, finance minister, will be, will be there as well. So we're, we're going to be partnering up with them in terms of the work that they're doing. And, uh, and you know, half of this is funded by the, uh, by the federal government. So, they're, uh, mm. you know, half of our cost in this uh, venture is, is federal go- government funding for, obviously, cross-border trade and continuing to develop relationship between communities as well as between our, our two collective countries. Next question was how much uh, are the other levels of government involved, meaning provincial and federal? You've certainly, uh, uh, you've certainly confirmed that. That's great mm-hmm. to see everybody rowing in the same direction on this, looking for opportunity. Well, I mean that's and that's the art of this. Uh, you know, now, now cities are not necessarily waiting for provincial and federal partners to uh, kind of lead the way. That used to be the traditional way you would do these kinds of uh, business uh, 
visits. Uh, but uh, today, you know, cities are are matching up with cities in uh, in other places. So we've uh, we've matched up with Leipzig, Germany, in terms of the DHL piece. Uh, some Columbia, Columbia cities that have been a, a target ever since the Pan Am Games, uh, you know, were held here, and there's been a lot mm. of crossover, you know, opportunities that have uh, come back and forth. And uh, and today, uh, you know, in this trip, it's going to be uh, New Delhi and uh, Mumbai and Ama, Ahmedabad. Uh, Ama, sorry, Ahmedabad. Sorry, I'm, I'm not. That's okay. <laughs> it's a tongue, it's a tongue twister for me. Somebody yesterday said Islamabad, which I find a lot easier to say. Mm. This is Ahmedabad, uh, which is a, a community that has a number of uh, the students that are looking to uh, to to access Mohawk College, and they. We're going to meet with a lot of parents and a lot of students and talk to them about the benefits of Mohawk College and the benefits of their time in, in the city of Hamilton. What sort of preparation goes into something like this? It must take, how long does it take to organize something like this? These are, you know, if not months, uh, if not years in the making. Uh, these these things don't just happen overnight. Uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's a you know, the, uh, the ambassador, uh, local ambassador, Indian ambassador, a consulate in Toronto is obviously very helpful. Uh, they're, a, they're a primary driver of uh, a lot of the connections that we need to have. We, uh, we employ often uh, facilitators uh, in, in those communities that we're going to visit to ensure that we've got uh, appropriate and, and direct contacts that, uh, that we can have. So it takes, uh, you know, I would say you know, seven or eight months, but uh, might, might even be something that develops over years. Uh, November 17th to the 22nd, that's a pretty short visit for such a long trip. You've got a jam-packed agenda, it looks like. It is jam-packed, and, uh, you know, it's going to be efficient. Uh, hopefully we'll have a a moment or two to, uh, to appreciate the country and, uh, and, you know, some of the, uh, Mm-hmm. Some of the food and some of the uh, the, uh, the the ambiance of India, spectacular country with uh, you know obviously a huge population and uh, lots of diversity as well. So we'll uh, we'll have some moments to, uh, to to be able to enjoy that, but most of it is uh, all business, and uh, we'll be we'll be traveling to the various communities, and uh, and uh, we've got our agenda packed pretty full of meetings with. Uh, City officials, uh, mayors, uh, as, as well as other businesses that uh, are all potential targets for us to uh, sit down with and have a conversation around the benefits of investing in Hamilton. Uh, it sounds like you're meeting with everything from government officials right to parents of students. That's quite a range. Right. Yeah, and it, you know, I mean, it speaks to the diversity of opportunities in the city of Hamilton. And uh, you know, obviously, for for places like McMaster and Mohawk College, uh, international students are uh, you know a great financial benefit uh, to them. Uh, they pay uh, you know 100 percent cost as opposed to subsidized costs for other students uh, you know that are that are going to these institutions. So there's a real strong economic benefit, and there's a strong economic benefit for bringing a lot of those students here to uh, you know whether or not we can. Uh, have that those students become our future ambassadors to the countries they're coming from. And so uh, many of them start businesses or start uh, new opportunities or have different ideas. And their, uh, their time in Canada can lead to a, you know, wonderful relationship and uh, future business opportunities that can uh, create future employment locally and in India as well. So I think they're, they're all interconnected. They're, uh, they're not separate and apart. 
And uh, that kind of development of relationships is uh, critically important for cities to continue to uh, work towards developing to uh, foster those future development opportunities. How would industry or companies get involved in something like this? I mean, are there meetings of the minds? You're all standing around together. You know what we need to do? We need to get a bunch of people. We need to go here. We need to go there. We need to do this. Uh, is that, is it, is our organic? Is that, is that how this stuff starts? No, I think uh, largely it was a call out to a number of different companies. So the, the sectors that we're, we're targeting are actually life sciences, uh, digital technology companies, uh, as well as uh, some beverage manufacturing and aerospace and defense. So the moment you defendify, identify where the targets are, then you go and gather those companies that uh, work in that space and say, are you interested in uh, participating? In, and do you have an interest in the, in the market in India? And uh, and then it filters down from there. So some of them are not ready for that uh, that kind of expansion yet. Others are primed and more than willing to uh, participate and have been looking for the you know worldwide uh, opportunities to expand their their company opportunities. So it really really is a, a identifying the key sectors that we want to be uh, working in, having had uh, you know already developed some relationships uh, previously. And then uh, targeting the very companies that are working in that space, and uh, and, and wondering if they're uh, if they're ready to uh, start expanding their markets to India and looking for opportunities to come here. What is the reaction from from other countries when you send a delegation like this over to their country? Uh, you know what I mean. It works both ways. Quite frankly, we have received numbers of delegations from uh, from other countries on a pretty regular basis. So whether it's China or Colombia or India. Uh, you know, a lot of them come here looking for the same kinds of uh, relationships and opportunities. And, you know, the uh, the, the back and forth, uh, you know, obviously continues to nurture and develop those relationships that end up uh, resulting in, in you know, future opportunities. Now, you know, do we realize all of those opportunities? N- not necessarily. But, you know, if you can just if you can win two or three, uh, DHL being, you know, a prime example, you know, mm. for the amount of time and money we invested in it. Uh, it is now going to be paying to the city of Hamilton and employing, you know, hundreds of people and paying some $500,000 plus uh, in terms of tax revenues to the, to the city of Hamilton. And so, uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, over forever, as long as they're here. So, you know, if you can add, you can add up the, uh, you know, the, the, the long-term benefits for you know, kind of the modest investment that it takes to develop those kinds of relationships. So the response we get is they understand why we're there. They have companies that are looking to expand their markets. Uh, we have the same. And so how do we combine those mutual interests into something positive for both? Uh, we know what it's been like, Mayors, trying to sell the city to the rest of the province, the rest of the country, and the great gains that, uh, the, that we have made since then. Uh, is mm-hmm. it just as difficult to sell the, uh, the city to another country? Or is it easier because they don't have those preconceived notions? They just look at what you have and go for it. Yeah, I think that's the uh, the issue. I mean, obviously, we're trading on the, the fact that Canada seemed to be in the world uh, a stable political environment, financially stable, uh, you know, well trained people, uh, you know, good, good, uh, good workforce, uh, you know, opportunities. So uh, I think they they see Canada in in that positive light, and that's obviously something you trade on when you go there. And then uh, you know, individual communities then have to demonstrate, uh, you know, what the, what the what the value proposition is for you know Hamilton and. You know, for Hamilton, our value proposition is quite simple. It's uh, we're at the center of uh, you know a massive uh, you know market, uh, you know both uh, the east and west of us in terms of the United States on on both borders. Uh, some 50 million people, uh, you know, not far from uh, kind of the epicenter of Hamilton. We have great transportation networks. We have an active port. 
We have an active airport. You know, you add up all those benefits as well as a well-trained, uh, educated uh, population. Uh, people look at that and say, you know, this is a this is a location where I can serve the customers that I want to serve, but also get the employment uh, opportunities that are, are going to help me fulfill the uh, the business opportunity that I see happening in the city of Hamilton in in, in a location that has a, a great quality of life. But all of those factors matter. And so our, our purpose going there is to demonstrate to them that uh, Hamilton is a good investment opportunity for all of those reasons. Here we grow again. Uh, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is with us and taking a delegation to India on November 17th through the 22nd. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. As always, good luck. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about vaping. Uh, we've talked about vaping many times on this show, and again, which was, uh, I guess, made its debut as something to help people get off smoking cigarettes. Uh, now has become a recreational device, I guess. And uh, there's not a lot of research done, but what we do know uh, certainly doesn't look too positive. That being said, it seems to be a free for all for. Uh, those that are selling vaporizing products and, and promotion and such, although the government is trying desperately to get a handle on that. In the, in the midst of all of that, uh, an unbelievable story uh, coming out of Detroit medical staff at a Detroit hospital have done a, a double lung transplant after uh, uh, a teenager, they're not telling us who it is, but someone 16 to 17 years of age uh, suffering severe injury to their lungs as a result of vaping. And it, it's incredible how this story has drawn attention to what the risks are here. Medical staff at, at Detroit's Henry Ford Health System Hospital performed a double lung transplant on a patient who suffered from vaping injury in both lungs. They announced on Monday that it was the first procedure of its kind in the United States on someone who has developed irreparable lung damage due to vaping. Uh, the patient between the age of 16 and 17 uh, years of age, uh, his parents, and he wanted his story and the photographs of his lungs to be shared to warn others about the dangers uh, surrounding vaping. Uh, the teenager faced imminent death had he not received a lung transplant, said the doctor who was involved in the surgery. To talk more about all of this, David Hammond is with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. What do you know about this story? Are you surprised that something has got to this state? Yes. Uh, I'm not surprised because in the last few months, we've seen over 2,000 cases of serious lung disease, somewhere around 40 deaths in the U.S., and this is one of these serious cases. You know, I think it made the news because of the type of treatment, but unfortunately, it's not an isolated case. Um, you know, and the unfortunate side of this is that it's created all sorts of confusion. You know, we have millions of people that have tried e-cigarettes in Canada. Um, most of the illnesses and cases in the U.S. are due to what we believe are contaminants in THC or cannabis vape oils, not the conventional e-cigarettes that you'd buy across, you know, in a store up here in Canada. Now, we can't rule that out entirely, but most of it appears to be contaminants in THC products at this stage. So it's not necessarily the, the device or the process, it's the products that are going into it. You're absolutely right. You know, when 
I always think about parents or teachers talking to their kids or students, and when someone says the word vaping, they're often thinking about different things. So vaping is the mode of delivery. It means instead of burning something and inhaling the smoke, you just heat it and you get vapor and inhale it. The risks are going to be what you're vaping, what you're inhaling. Now, right off the bat, you're almost guaranteed to be you know, inhaling some chemicals with some toxic level. So not good for you, this idea that it's safe or natural, you know, throw that out the window. Um, but there are big differences between um, what you might see in a conventional e-cigarette and what we've seen in these THC vape oils, which we think have uh, vitamin E oil, which is fine if you eat it. It's a common food additive, but not if you inhale it into your lungs. And the idea is that people are trying to stretch the THC oil in these products, often sold illegally, and so they add this. But unfortunately, when you vape this, it creates a very... Um, serious lung disease, as we see. I've heard a mention of vitamin E and, uh, sorry, vitamin E oil and it, it as a contaminant in these products in other situations like this. Is this the key with all of this? Is this the common denominator here? Well, yes, it does appear. Yes, it is the common denominator. Does it account for all of those 2,000 cases? That's still open to question, but they just had a big breakthrough last week where they actually did sort of looked at lung tissue and they did find um, evidence of vitamin E oil in all of those cases. So, you know, it's a reminder again that um, you should only be vaping nicotine cigarettes if they are helping you to stop smoking, full stop. If you're a kid, if you're grabbing these to a party, do not do it. The second thing is, is that we do have we're just in the process of legalizing THC vape oils in Canada. They're not in stores yet, but they should be in a couple of months. Nobody should be using these products on the black market. The sad reality, as you said, I was at 17 years old, this particular case yeah. in Detroit. That is the typical age range of the people that we've seen in the U.S. So this isn't you know, something you get from vaping for five or ten years. This is something that makes literally people you know, drop dead from an acute use. So do not use any THC vape oils, at least until they become legal. Uh, because the effect is so immediate, as you have just alluded to, does that suggest that it is the product inside as opposed to the, as opposed to the, the device itself? Absolutely. So, you know, um, it's still a big, important question. What are the long-term effects of vaping if you've been vaping nicotine for 5, 10 years? We expect it to do some harm, not as much as smoking. Um, but we know that you can manufacture these products so they don't have constituents that essentially kill people or land them in the ICU. And that's the argument in favor of product standards. If someone is a proponent of cannabis legalization, well, that's one argument, that companies and consumers and governments know what's going in those products. Um, buying it from the black market, as many Canadians do now, all bets are off. You don't know what you're inhaling, and do not in inhale unknown chemicals from these products. Uh, and it appears, as I, you know, as you dig down more into this story and read about uh, this boy's uh, experience, it appears that vitamin E oil, uh, in some sort, was related to this situation. Is that the way you understand it? Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard this specific case, but the the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. is you know, been investigating this for a couple of months and doing all sorts of things. It, it speaks to the confusion in the product market that it's not so easy for them to figure out what people have been using. You know, it's, mm. think about when we have, um, you know, E. coli and spinach. Well, they can pretty quickly figure out what batch it was and where it came from. The product market out there for e-cigarettes and for THC vaping products is frankly a mess. Um, and so, 
you know. So you, I, my next question was, where do these products come from? They could come from well, anywhere. Well, great question. Yeah. They come from all over the place. You don't really know if you're buying it illegally. Now, sometime after the end of December, when you can buy these through legal stores, if I'm working in the government right now, I am still going to be asking very important questions about, okay, there's some product standards here, but are they sufficient? And in the meantime, I would suggest, you know, consumers have lots of choices for consuming cannabis. If you want to vape it, vape the dried herb. Don't vape pre-processed, manufactured vape oil, which is where the unknown contaminants. How come it? How come it affects you with oil, but not? Oh, I guess because obviously the oil is cut with vitamin E. Possibly. Well, that's it, right? I right. mean, we talk about processed food to try and avoid right. super-processed food. Our cannabis market is changing from people smoking dried herb or vaping dried herb to things that go to a factory that get, you know, the THC, the stuff that makes you high, gets extracted and it gets mixed in with other ingredients and chemicals. That's a different process. Now, again, you can do that without having, adding chemicals that kill people, but it, it adds a certain level of uncertainty about the ingredients in there. And, and frankly, that's not necessary. Those products are also usually way more potent. So THC levels around 90% as opposed to what you get in dried herb, about 15 or 20%. So there's a couple reasons to warn consumers away from these products. Uh, what does vaping something with vitamin E in it, oil in it, uh, what does that do to your lungs? I mean, to put it as simply as I can, a respirologist was quoted saying the other day, you can drink water, you know, just fine. You can't breathe it very well. Right. There are all sorts of chemicals that whether they essentially create generic inflammation and stop the transfer of oxygen into our blood. Our lungs are very sensitive tissues. Um, and, you know, you, it's just like air pollution. You want to minimize the contaminants that go in there. And, you know, we're still learning lots about vaping and, and, and different chemicals, but something like vitamin E oil causes such damage that essentially the lungs stop working. Um, and, you know, tragically, we've had several dozens deaths uh, in the last few months. So is vaping still better than smoking? I mean, where, where's the, where, what's the word on that? Or do we just not really know yet? We don't have the research. Well, it goes back to what you said. It depends what you're vaping. Everything, you know, by the way, let's be clear. This is a big problem. We don't know how many cases in Canada, but it's somewhere around half a dozen. So this is also why we think it's a contaminant because it's kind of restricted to, to the U.S. But everything we know suggests that vaping is not safe but it's still likely to be less harmful than cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking is like jumping off a 20-story building. Right. 7,000 chemicals, dozens of carcinogens. So vaping, you know, almost anything looks better than cigarette smoking. So if someone has quit smoking by using e-cigarettes, they should not go back to smoking. Is the government doing enough to restrict these, to govern these, to, uh, to, to supply some sort of guidelines to retailers? You know, that's a great question. On the books, at some point, e-cigarette companies are going to have to test their products and report what's in them. Right now, our government and consumers don't have any information about the chemicals in them. So if you buy bottled water, you get that nutrition facts table and an ingredient list. We don't have that list. As far as I'm aware, the government doesn't have that list, even for the biggest brands of e-cigarettes in Canada. So we are playing catch-up with this industry, and quite frankly, you know, that is unacceptable. So um, we need to know what's in there. We need more research. But the first step is let's just figure out what the ingredients are so we can give consumers some sense of confidence. Has this been traced to the U.S.? Has it been traced to a certain geographic location at all? Uh, 49 states yeah. in the U.S. So, 
you know, we haven't seen it much in England. We haven't seen it in Canada. We've seen a few cases for sure, but nowhere near like the U.S. So that's what makes people, um, you know, think that it's not only THC, but it's, it's geographically concentrated. But, but let me just be clear. If someone is using THC vape oil in Canada illegally, we know that does come across the border. And I can't emphasize that enough for your listeners. At least until we have a handle on this outbreak and there's legal products, do not use those. There is a, a, a very real acute risk for them. Hmm. Is this message getting out? I mean, are, are we able to zero in? Is it a, a series of companies? Is it one? Uh, are, we ever, are we closer to finding out the source of this? We're getting a little closer. There's been a few black market brands implicated, but what it has done is made us realize that there are a lot of gaps and, and unknowns just more generally. So um, the, the media has been misreported. Some of your listeners might be thinking, oh, I thought that was just regular e-cigarettes for nicotine. You know, we can't 100% rule it out, but it is primarily THC. So our communication hasn't been very good. And I think this is a wake-up call for regulators, cannabis, nicotine, to go, okay, you know what? We don't have prescription drugs where we go, hmm, we're not sure what's in them, but we'll sell them hmm. in every corner store. Yeah. Um, we need to get on top of this quickly. Uh, it, it, should this just have been under the guise of tobacco when it all, all started? It seemed that because there was no rules, there was free reign here. Look, in some respects, yeah. I mean, in the respect of should we know what's in these products before they're sold in all corner stores? Yes. Should we have advertising restrictions so they don't reach kids? Yeah. Boy, did we drop the ball on that. You know, we learned several decades ago that if you put up big product displays behind the candy counter that kids look at them and seem to like them. Um, we don't need to do everything that we've done for tobacco because these are somewhat less harmful. But I think we threw open the door to these products a couple of years ago, and we probably opened the door too wide. So you're now seeing provinces and the Fed scramble to sort of close that door a bit further. Is the message getting out to kids in schools? You seem to see a lot of it around, uh, around schools, unfortunately. Look, not to date. And it doesn't surprise me because so long as they can go grab a product that, you know, has strawberry cotton candy flavor and, you know, has beautiful colors and everything else, that that doesn't really signal to you that this is a potentially harmful product. So the sad thing is I think we're also failing adult smokers who are the group that could benefit from these products. They're confused about whether they're actually less harmful. A lot of them don't want to go near it when it seems like this is something for a 16-year-old. Um, you know, these products could help some adult smokers to quit. Health professionals could be talking to smokers about them for smokers that have tried other methods. But quite frankly, it's shutting down that side because we've done such a poor job controlling their appeal and use among kids. What advice do you have for parents who might be facing this? Talk to your kids. Um, you know, I look, I, I, same advice you should have to talk about booze, yeah. to talk about other drugs. <clears throat> talk to them, try and be open, listen to what they're saying. Try and understand if they are vaping, ask them what, what they're using. Um, and like anything else, it's up to each parent to decide if their kid goes to a party and tries this, you know, with a group of friends, how worried to be. If your kid is doing this on a daily basis, if they're doing it alone before school or work, those are signs of a real problem. Hmm, man, oh man. Uh, do you expect to see more of these cases before we get a handle on this sort of thing? I mean, this is obviously extreme and making headlines with, with this case in a double lung transplant. Are we going to see more of this before we see less? I don't think the cases have slowed down in the U.S., but fortunately, we're still at a fairly low number in Canada. 
Um, so let's cross our fingers, hope that that remains the case, um, and then we can get back to the business of trying to educate about what these products are and what they're not and regulating them properly. But um, let, let's hope that this is the you know the peak and that we're going to start to see a, a decline in the U.S. especially. How long, any idea how long this person, and again, we're speculating here, we don't know a lot about it, this person may have been doing this before they got to this extent, or is this something that happens relatively quickly considering the vitamin E contaminant? Yeah, for the contaminants, it, it appears that it is something that can happen just based on an, an initial exposure. So there are some folks that probably have been vaping for a while, some folks for for a much shorter period, but you know, think about this as like an acute chemical expo- uh, exposure. One of the one of the autopsies talked about lungs looking like a chemical burns from a chemical plant. Um, so, oh wow, <laughs> this is not your general effects of vaping. These are these are things that should not be in these products and that when inhaled are causing immediate and serious damage to the lungs. Isn't vaping, wouldn't this produce something hotter than a, a normal cigarette or something like of that nature? Does that affect the lungs? Uh, no, it's actually lower temperature. Oh, it is um, and lower. And that's one of the keys is that, um, you know, you don't get sort of burning combustion. Right. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt it, it's vapor carrying chemicals into your lungs. Those yeah. chemicals might be nicotine, they might be some other flavors. Again, none of that's good for you, um, but you know, not all chemicals are equal, and some of them are acutely toxic, and that's what we've seen in the states. Dave Hammond has been with us, associate professor, University of Waterloo medical staff in Detroit, have done a, lung, a double lung transplant on a teenager after developing uh, injuries to the lungs uh, through vaping. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.